You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Glenn Lowry at bloggingheads.tv. This is a special edition of The Glenn Show, featuring a debate between myself and the sociologist Adoner Usmani, organized by Professor Robert Ingram of Ohio University on the theme, Why Does Racial Inequality Persist? Many thanks to Professor Ingram for allowing me to share this encounter with my Glen Show audience. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome tonight. Thanks for tuning in to this debate. It's brought to you by the George Washington Forum at Ohio University. This event receives support from Menards and from the Thomas W. Smith Foundation through the Jack Miller Center. And I want to thank them for their support. Tonight's guests are Glenn Lowry and Adonar Yuzmani. And I appreciate them both for being here tonight. Glenn is Merton P. Stoltz, Professor of the Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Brown University. Before that, he was Professor at Harvard and at Boston University a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. He's published widely about racial inequality and social policy. Adoner is an assistant professor of sociology at Harvard University. Before that, he was a postdoctoral fellow at Brown. He's written about collective action, democracy, and the causes and consequences of American mass incarceration. He's on the editorial board of Catalyst and has written for Jacobin. Glenn and O'Donnell will be debating an important and a timely question. Why does racial inequality persist? Both agree that it does persist in America, but they differ on why it persists and what's to be done about it. For the first 25 minutes, Glenn will lay out his case. In the ensuing 25 minutes, O'Donnell will respond. Afterwards, I'll moderate a discussion between them. We want to be sure to address your questions for them, too so you can pose them by going to the Q&A function below. I'll do my very best to put all of your questions to Glenn and Adonna in the discussion. So thanks to you both for agreeing to this debate. And Glenn, I wanna turn it over to you. All right, uh, Robert, thank you very much for the invitation and thanks to Adonna for being willing to put up with my arguments and rebut them at will. Uh, let me get right down to it. Um, in these remarks, I'm going to address the historical fact of black subordination in America and its implications for the nature of American citizenship. In doing so, I summarize an argument first advanced in an essay I prepared for the Manhattan Institute a couple of years ago. The priority of informal social relations before formal economic transactions is my theme. I'm gonna begin by making two observations, one having to do with the dynamics of human development and the other, about the foundations of racial identity. I'll go on from there to raise some thorny questions about a group, racial group's culture uh, and about processes of social causation uh, and about issues of personal and collective responsibility. Why, I ask, the success of the civil rights movement notwithstanding has the subordinate status of black Americans persisted into the 21st century? 
Clear thinking about this intractable problem requires one to distinguish the role played by discrimination against Blacks from the role of counterproductive patterns of behavior that can be found among Blacks. Now, I admit that this is a very sensitive issue, and I've put it rather starkly. Vocal advocates for racial equality refuse even to consider the possibility that problematic behavior could be an important factor contributing to the persisting disadvantaged status of Black Americans. At the same time, some observers on the right of American politics insist that <clears throat> excuse me, the right of American politics exists that anti-Black discrimination is no longer an important determinant of unequal social outcomes. I'm going to try to chart a middle course, acknowledging anti-Black biases that should be remedied, but insisting on the imperative of addressing and reversing behavior patterns uh, that prevent some Blacks from seizing newly opened opportunities. These two positions can be recast as causal narratives. Under the bias narrative, one argues that racism and white supremacy are the culprits. Black folks can't get ahead until they relent. Since on this view, discrimination is the cause of racial inequality, we must continue urging the reform of American society toward the end of eliminating discrimination. Under the development narrative, by contrast, one emphasizes the need to consider how people acquire the skills, traits, habits, and orientations that foster an individual's successful participation in American society. If Black youngsters do not have the experiences, <clears throat> are not exposed to the influences, and do not benefit from the resources that foster and facilitate their human development, to that extent, they may fail to achieve their full human potential. <clears throat> On this view, this lack of development is the ultimate cause of stark racial disparities in income, wealth, education, family structure, and much else. Of course, these two narratives bias versus development, are not mutually exclusive. What is clear, however, is that in terms of prescribing interventions and remedies, they point in very different directions. The bias narrative urges us to have conversations about race. America must reform itself in response to demands to end racism. We need more of this or that, whatever the this or the that may be, on the social justice warrior's agenda. One hears this kind of rhetoric and reads these exhortations in the media every day. The development narrative puts more onus on the responsibilities of African Americans to act in ways that help realize our full human potential. It is not satisfied with wishful thinking like, if we could only double the budget for some social program, then the homicide rate amongst black men would be less atrocious. Or if we could just get the local police department investigated by the US Department of Justice, then, well, the development narrative wants to ask them what? then it's going to become safe to walk around on the south side of Chicago after midnight? As a social scientist who looks to evidence for guidance, I find that to be an extremely dubious claim. So what are my two observations? Over 40 years ago, yes, that long, in my doctoral dissertation at MIT, I had the good fortune to coin the phrase social capital. I did so by way of contrasting my concept, social capital, with what economists were calling, and still do call, human capital. As you may know, human capital theory imports into the study of human inequality an intellectual framework, which had been developed primarily to explain the investment decisions by firms. This is a framework that focuses on the analysis of formal economic transactions. In my thesis, I argued that this framework was inadequate to the problem of accounting for social inequality. 
Allow me to explain. My fundamental point was that associating business with human investments is merely an analogy and not a particularly good one if one seeks to explain persistent racial disparities. Business investments are transactional. Human investments are essentially relational. Important things having to do with informal social relations are missed in the human capital approach, I argued. Human capital theory is incomplete when it comes to explaining racial disparities. There are two central aspects of this, incom- of this incompleteness and thus my two observations about the dynamics of human development and the nature of racial inequality. Observation number one. First, I stress that all human development is socially situated and mediated. That is, I argue that the development of human beings occurs inside of social institutions. It takes place as between people by way of human interactions, the family, the community, the school, the peer group. These cultural institutions of human association are where development is achieved. Resources essential to human development, the attention that a parent gives to her child, for instance, are not alienable. Developmental resources, for the most part, are not commodities. The development of human beings is not up for sale. Rather, structured connections between individuals create the context within which developmental resources come to be allocated to individual persons. Opportunity travels along the synapses of these social networks. People are not machines. Their productivities, which is to say, the behavioral and cognitive capacities bearing on their social and economic function, these are not merely the result of a mechanical infusion of material resources. Rather, these essential capacities are the byproducts of social processes mediated by networks of human affiliation and connectivity. This was fundamentally important, I thought, and still think for understanding persistent racial disparities in America. That was the first point I wanted to make all those years ago about the incompleteness of human capital theory. Observation number two. My second observation was that what we are calling race in America is mainly a social and only indirectly a biological phenomenon. The persistence across generations of racial differentiation between large groups of people in an open society where individuals live in close proximity one to another provides a refutable indirect evidence of a profound separation between the racially defined networks of social affiliation within that society. Put directly, there would be no races in the steady state of any dynamical social system unless on a daily basis and in regard to their most intimate affairs, people paid assiduous attention to the boundaries separating themselves from racially distinct others. Over time, race would cease to exist unless people chose to act in a manner so as biologically to reproduce the variety of phenotypic expression that constitutes the substance of racial distinction. Now, I know that that was a complicated sentence and I want to be understood. I cannot overemphasize this point. Race is not something given in nature. Rather, it is socially produced. It is an equilibrium outcome. It is something that we are making. It is endogenous. It follows that if the goal is to understand the roots of durable racial inequalities, we will need to attend in some detail to the processes that cause race to persist as a fact in the society under study, 
because such processes almost certainly will not be unrelated to the allocation of developmental resources in that society. Here then is my second observation. The creation and reproduction of racial inequality as a social reality anywhere rests on cultural conceptions about identity that are embraced by the people in that society. These are the convictions people affirm about who they are and about the legitimacy and desirability of conducting intimate relations with racially distinct others. Here, I do not only mean sexual relations. My impulse to contrast human and social capital all those years ago was rooted in my conviction that beliefs of this kind ultimately determine the access that people enjoy to the informal resources required to develop their human potential. What I call social capital on this view is a critical prerequisite for creating what economists refer to as human capital. This point is crucial, I believe, if we are to understand persistent racial inequality in America. I wish to insist, however, that by invoking social effects that limit individual achievement, in no way am I blaming the victim. Historically oppressed groups time and again have evolved notions of identity that cut against the grain of their society's mainstream. A culture can develop among them that inhibits talented youngsters from taking the actions needed to develop that talent. Now, given such a situation, I wish to ask, do kids in a racially segregated dysfunctional peer group simply have the wrong utility functions? It is a mistake to attribute the dysfunctional behavior of an historically oppressed group of people to their simply having the wrong preferences or values when those preferences have emerged from a set of historical experiences that reflect the larger society's social structures and activities. Another way of saying this is that when thinking about group disparities, social relations come before economic transactions. When ethnic communities and their local cultures are not integrated across boundaries of race in a society, then racial inequalities can persist Persistent racial inequality derives on this view, not just from discrimination, but more fun fundamentally from a complex, morally ambiguous and difficult to regulate set of phenomena that embody and reflect what people see as the meanings giving significance to their lives. And most crucially, from the structure of social connectivity to which those meanings have given rise. Such socially mediated behavioral issues are real and they must be faced squarely if we are to make progress. Many people on the left in American politics who claim that white supremacy and implicit bias and old fashioned anti-black racism suffice to account for black disadvantage are daring you to disagree with them. Their implicit rebuke is that if you don't accept their account, then you must believe that there's something intrinsically wrong with black people, that is, Unless you ascribe black disadvantage to racial unfairness, you must be a racist yourself who thinks that blacks are inferior. How else, these people ask, in effect, could one explain the disparities? Blaming the victim is the offense that they will accuse you of. But I am here to tell you that this is a bluff. It's a dare. It's a rhetorical move. It's a debater's trick. Because at the end of the day, what are those folks saying when they declare that mass incarceration is racism? The high number of blacks in jails is said to be self-evidently a sign of American racism. And if one responds, well, it's mainly a sign of the pathological behavior of criminals who happen to be black, one risks being dismissed as immoral reprobate. 
Yet common sense and much evidence suggests that people are not being arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced because they are black. Rather, jails are full of people who have broken the law, who have hurt other people, who stole something, who violated basic rules of civility and society. To the vast majority of observers, prison is not a conspiracy to confine black people. No serious person really believes that, I maintain. Not really. As a matter of fact, the young men with pistols taking each other's lives on the streets of St. Louis, Baltimore, and Chicago are exhibiting behavioral pathology plain and simple. We shouldn't be afraid to say that. And those who must bear the cost of such behavior are mainly black people. And an ideology that ascribes that to racism, I'm arguing here, is a bluff. Frankly, it's laughable. It cannot be taken seriously, not by serious people. Nobody really believes it. Or consider the educational test score data. I just want to give some illustrations of the general point that I'm making here, which is that, yes, progressives ascribe such racial differences to racism, and yet, no, few sensible persons really believe that they are actually due to racism. Excuse me. Pardon me. Uh, The anti-racism advocates are, in effect, daring you to call their bluff. They're daring you to say some groups send their children to the elite universities in outside numbers compared to other groups due to the fact that their academic preparation is higher, better, and finer. Their excellence is an achievement. One is not born knowing those things. One acquires them through effort. Now, why have some youngsters acquired these skills while others have not? That is a very deep and interesting question, one which I am prepared to entertain at length. But the simple retort, racism, is not serious. It's laughable, as if such disparities have nothing to do with behavior, with cultural patterns, with what peer groups value, with how people spend their time, with what they identify as being critical to their own self-respect. Anyone who believes that, I maintain, is a fool. Asians are said sardonically to be a model minority. Well, As a matter of fact, a pretty compelling case can be made that culture is critical to their success. Don't just take my word for it. Read Jennifer Lee and Min Zhou's book, The Asian American Achievement Paradox. They interviewed Asian families in Southern California trying to learn how these kids got into Dartmouth and Columbia and Cornell at such high rates. What they find is that these families do, in fact, exhibit cultural patterns, embrace values, adopt practices, engage in behavior, and follow disciplines that orient them so as to facilitate the achievements of their children. It defies common sense as well as the evidence to assert that they do not, or conversely, to assert that the paucity of African Americans performing at the very top of the intellectual spectrum, I'm talking here about excellence, I'm talking about the low relative numbers of blacks who exhibit it, has nothing to do with the behavior of black people, that this outcome is due entirely to institutional forces, Frankly, I think that's an absurdity, and I don't believe anybody really believes it. Neither does anybody believe that 70% of African-American babies born to a woman without a husband is, A, a good thing, nobody really thinks that, or B, that is due to the ongoing practice of anti-Black racism. They say it, but they don't believe it. They're bluffing. So here's the deal, in my view. The 21st century failures of African-Americans to take advantage of the opportunities created by the civil rights revolution are palpable and damning. 
and they are being denied at every turn. This position is untenable. The end of Jim Crow segregation and the advent of equal rights for blacks was a game changer. The fact that we are now a half century down the line from this and we still have all of these disparities is shameful. And a large part of the responsibility for this lies with the behavior of black people ourselves. People taught the racial wealth gap. They act as if pointing to the absence of wealth in the African-American community is ipso facto an indictment of the system. Even as black Caribbean and African immigrants are starting businesses, penetrating the professions, presenting themselves at Ivy League institutions in outsized numbers and so forth. In doing so, they are behaving, although black, like other groups in our nation have behaved throughout our history. Yes, they're immigrants, not natives. And yes, immigration is positively selective. I acknowledge that. Still, something is dreadfully wrong when adverse patterns of behavior readily visible in the black American population go without being adequately discussed to the point that anybody daring to mention them is labeled a racist. It's all a bluff, I maintain, one which cannot be sustained indefinitely we are already beginning to see the collapse of this house of cards. Such bluffing can be very costly, especially to the least advantaged among us. Thus, President Obama's Department of Education sought to cajole local school districts around the country to narrow the racial disparity in the suspension rates of students for disruptive behavior. Narrow that racial disparity or else you'll have trouble with the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, was the message. Along comes Betsy DeVos in the Trump administration who rescinded that advice to a great deal of consternation. Listening to that debate, I thought that if in fact it was the case that teachers, principals, and guidance counselors and school-based police officers are discriminating by race so that the same behavior amongst black kids ends up with a tougher sanction like suspension uh, than that behavior amongst whites, that that would be a real problem that the Office of Civil Rights should get involved with. But Based on all that we know, for instance, based on the crime and incarceration rates of this very same population five years down the road, it's at least plausible that an objective racial disparity exists in the frequency of disruptive behavior that occasions a difference in suspension statistics. Now, if that's right, if it's not racism, rather if it's the behavior of the kids, then think of what a disservice is being done to those kids to cover up their disruptive behavior under the excuse that we're protecting their civil rights. What a terrible thing to be doing, and not only to them, but to their classmates who came into the school with the intention of learning, and to the teachers who were doing a very difficult job by being in that classroom with these kids, by not being willing to back their play and instead framing it as a civil rights violation. This is on the borderline of being criminal, in my view, if the disparity is caused by the fact that the disruptive behavior is actually more prevalent amongst the lower class black kids. I don't have to blame them to observe that their behavior is problematic. The roots of that problematic behavior may well lay far outside of their control. Nevertheless, to not acknowledge it is to to go forward in a way that I think is neither just um, nor uh, productive. Now, I want to conclude this on a somewhat different note. How a diverse society answers the question, who are we, is a fundamentally significant issue. It's certainly an important question in the United States today. Who are we? Whose country is this? When we talk about crime, violence, school failure, urban decay, and race, are these matters in the back of our mind that we understand as us against them? Because if it's us against them, anything is possible. It becomes possible to say about those people languishing in the ghettos of our great cities, that's not my country. That's some third world thing. 
this was actually said during the flood of New Orleans uh, during Hurricane Katrina in 2005, but it's a lie. Black people in New Orleans have been there for 250 years. They're not aliens. They are as American as you can get, as American as anybody can be. That was us down there crawling on the rooftops. That was us huddled in the Superdome. It was us. My point is that the problems of racial inequality, which do have some basis in disparate patterns of behavior, are nevertheless quintessentially an American affair, not simply a measure of the inadequacy of something called black culture. They reflect upon our social inadequacies, I wish to argue. I've buttressed that argument by observing the incompleteness of human capital theory, by insisting that human developmental processes are socially contextualized, and by stressing the foundational role that race plays in all of this. This is what I mean when I, being an economist, nevertheless wish to insist on placing relations before transactions. Consider the poor central city dwellers who make up perhaps a quarter of the black population in the United States. The dysfunctional behavior of many in this population is a big part of the problem here to be sure. So conservatives demand for greater personal responsibility in these quarters is both necessary and proper in my opinion. And yet confronted with the despair, violence and self-destructive folly of so many people, it is morally and intellectually superficial and to the extreme to argue, as many have done, that those people just should get their acts together like many of the poor immigrants. If they did, we would not have such a horrific problem in our cities. To the contrary, any morally astute response to the social pathology of American history's losers should conclude that while we cannot change our ignoble past, we need not and must not be indifferent to contemporary suffering that issues directly from that past. Their culture may be implicated in their difficulties, but then too, so is our culture complicit in their troubles. We bear collective responsibility for the form and texture of our social relations. Thus, while we cannot ignore the behavioral problems of the so-called underclass, we should discuss and react to them as if we were talking about our own children, neighbors, and friends, which is to say, this is an American tragedy. It is a national, not merely a communal disgrace. Changing the definition of the American we is a first step toward rectifying the relational discrimination that afflicts our society. And this will require adjusting ways of thinking on all sides of the racial divide. Ultimately, I believe we need to get beyond race and as Dr. King prophetically envisioned to ground our civic discourses in an unwavering commitment to a transracial humanism. Achieving society where all members are thought of as being among us should be the goal. Thank you. Thanks very much, Glenn. Adna? Thanks, Robert, and thank you, Glenn, for agreeing to do this. It's always, as always, it's an honor to share the stage with you. Thank My you. parents always told me that all else equal, you learn more from those that you disagree with than from those whom you agree with. And I think there's no better testimony to their wisdom than all that I've learned from you and from your podcast, which I commend to the attention of the audience. Uh, my thinking on American racial inequality is incomparably sharper, thanks to my attempt to engage with your ideas. So in the time that I have, I'm going to try and do two things in response to Glenn's remarks. First, I want to offer a taxonomy slash reconstruction of Glenn's argument as I understand it. 
this taxonomy will unfold in slightly different terms than the terms that you just heard from Glenn, but I actually think this will be a useful exercise. What I'm going to suggest is that Glenn makes in his remarks and in the essay underlying these remarks some analytical claims and some normative claims. The second thing I want to do is I want to try and offer some criticisms of this argument. My reading of the essay and of Glenn's remarks just now is that he often, maybe sometimes, seems to conclude that certain normative conclusions follow from the analytical argument. Specifically and provocatively, at times he seems to suggest that we must talk about Black responsibility for Black-white inequality, given that racial inequality is partly a matter of Black behavior. At times it seems like maybe he actually disagrees with that, so it may simply be that this is an exercise in clarifying the normative argument that he's making, but we'll find out once Glenn responds. My weaker criticism of Glenn's essay is going to be that this conclusion doesn't follow from the arguments that he's offered us in the essay, and they require additional argument. But my stronger criticism will be that an entirely different normative conclusion follows if you incorporate an additional argument that I'm going to try and outline as we go along, and an argument about how actually we should think about praise, blame, and responsibility. So let me begin with the analytical contributions of Glenn's essay. I think it'll help here to summarize Glenn's argument syllogistically. And so to do that, I have prepared some slides that I want to try and share, which I'm going to do now. So this is the analytical part, as I was saying, of Glenn's essay. And this is how I understand it. So Glenn observes that there remain gaping, persistent racial inequalities in the United States. He observes further that Black Americans today are discriminated against. He also observes that Black Americans are handicapped by past discrimination, by inherited inequalities. And then he also observes that Black Americans behave in ways that promote inequality, what he's calling behavioral pathology. And then he concludes in his essay that all of these help explain persistent racial inequality. He wants to say yes to A matters, to B matters, but also to C matters. Also, the behavioral pathologies in the African-American community also help explain the gaping persistent inequalities in the United States. So before I start to criticize this argument, let me just note some things that I like about it. First, I think Glenn is right in his remarks to argue that most liberals and leftists would like to deny what I'm calling 2C here altogether. They would like to deny the fact that there are certain behavioral patterns in the African-American community that help promote or help explain racial inequality. The most current example of this, which is an example that Glenn gave in his remarks as well, is in discussions of criminal justice. Now, we know an African-American man is about five to six times more likely to be in prison than a white man. Yet, as Glenn would remind you, and I think he would be right to do so, our best available evidence suggests that a large share of this inequality, roughly maybe 70 to 80 percent, is explained by the fact that African-Americans commit more crime than white Americans and not explained by the racial discrimination that exists inside the criminal justice system, although, of course, that exists. Now, you won't find many liberals or many leftists talking about this, and Glenn is right to note that. 
I think I, I think Glenn would add, and I would agree, that liberals and leftists typically ignore this fact for what are basically ideological reasons. They are loath to admit to the fact of disparate rates of offending because they believe that to do so would be to blame the victim. And much of what I'm going to try and argue to, to you today is that they are wrong to believe that that conclusion follows. And maybe that Glenn is wrong to think that that conclusion follows, although we'll see whether Glenn agrees with me or not. The second thing that I like about Glenn's essay is that Glenn is also right, I think, to, to suggest that most people today emphasize present-day discrimination and present-day racial bias as their explanation for persistent racial inequality. This strikes Glenn, as it does me, as an unsatisfying account of black and white inequalities in most domains, whether in the labor market, whether with regards to family formation, whether with regards to criminal justice outcomes. Most empirical work suggests that racism in the sense of discrimination seems to explain only a small share of the inequality that we would like to account for. And I think one of the contributions of Glenn's essay is to suggest to us, is to implore us, that we need an account of racial inequality that can explain the persistence of racial inequalities amidst what has been massive significant progress in norms and laws around discrimination. Yet, so those are two things that I like about Glenn's essay, but you're not here to hear us agree with each other. So having said what I like about it, let me start to explain what I take issue with. Most of my energy, as I was saying earlier, will be spent on the normative implications of the essay, but there is one analytical issue that I want to raise first, which may actually, as I, as I heard Glenn speak, may actually just be a clarification, a cause for clarification, but we'll see. To my satisfaction, Glenn never quite clarifies how he understands the relationship between the choices that African-Americans make and the circumstances in which African-Americans live. That is, he never quite explains how he proposes we make sense of the very thorny question of how culture and behavior relate to social structure. Upon reading and rereading Glenn's underlying essay, it's not entirely clear to me whether he would disagree with the following revision of this analytical argument that I've just shown you. First, there are persistent racial inequalities, as we've observed. There is discrimination, there is inherited inequality, and then because of past and present discrimination, African-Americans behave in inequality promoting ways. And then conclusion, past discrimination, present discrimination help explain racial inequality in part doing so through what I'm calling 2C here. If it's helpful and you learn more visually, these slides show the same thing, but as a diagram. So what I'm proposing is that we clarify or maybe revise, depending on what Glenn thinks, his argument to be the right-hand side diagram rather than the left-hand side diagram. So I'm not sure if Glenn would reject this revision. What I would like to argue is that if he would not reject it, then much of the distinctive normative force of his essay is lost. And I'm going to try and explain this in a minute in more detail. On the other hand, if, if Glenn would reject this revision, which I think maybe he would, I would invite him to say a little bit more about why. As you've probably gathered, my revision, my clarification here, implies that my view is that culture, what we're calling culture, behavioral pathology, this basically denotes a set of norms, expectations, valuations that are roughly adapted to the circumstances in which agents live, perhaps through various 
selectional pressures. And we can talk perhaps about how exactly. This is my underlying materialism showing, let's say. But perhaps Glenn would like to argue that we should think of culture and behavior as more free-floating, developing in relative autonomy from those structural circumstances. If so, I would note that perhaps Glenn is the sociologist and I, the economist. Um, although that's just a joke, Glenn, because I would never accuse you of something so scarless as being sociologist. <laughs> now, I can see that this raises, this issue raises thorny foundational issues in the social sciences, and it's wrong to demand that Glenn solve this problem in a short essay. But all I want to note here is that without clarity on this question, there is going to be an unavoidable ambiguity in the analytical part of the essay, and I just invite Glenn to clarify. But while Glenn's essay, so, so Glenn's essay summarizes an analytical contribution, an, an excellent analytical contribution that he has made in his outstanding work on racial inequality, and that book, I believe it's a 2002 book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, is a book that everyone should immediately pick up and read. Much of the force of this essay derives from its conclusion that African Americans must bear some of the blame for the plight of Black America. At least this is how I read Glenn in argument. Now, this is a normative argument, by which I mean it's a conclusion about how we should distribute and think about moral responsibility. Now, how does Glenn reach this conclusion? And again, this is my attempt to reconstruct his argument. As I read it, the argument goes something like this. Glenn observes or argues that individuals are responsible for how they behave. Because of this position and per the analytical argument made above about African-American behavior, African-Americans are responsible for their inequality-promoting choices. Given that, and given what we showed earlier about the relationship between behavior and inequality, Glenn concludes African-Americans are partly responsible for persistent racial inequality. In effect, as I read it, Glenn is arguing that to have shown that inequality behavior, inequality promoting behavior by black Americans figures in black-white inequality. To have shown that is to have shown that black Americans are at least partly to blame for persistent inequality. In what follows, I want to try and make the argument that this conclusion is mistaken. Now, there are two ways to make this case, and I'm going to try both of them on you, and we can see which one sticks. Hopefully one of them sticks. The first way to reason to this conclusion is that if you, if you grant me my earlier revision of Glenn's analytical argument, it in fact becomes very difficult to reach the same normative conclusions that Glenn does, specifically this normative conclusion. So what do I mean by this? Well, consider Glenn's normative argument in light of the revision that I just proposed earlier. If you accept my suggestion that behavior is in fact a rational adaptation to circumstance, the argument now can be revised as follows. Because of past and present discrimination, African-Americans behave in inequality-promoting ways. Now we know we can observe that African-Americans are not responsible for past and present discrimination. Because of this, African-Americans are not responsible for their inequality-promoting behavior. And thus, we can conclude that African-Americans are not responsible for persistent racial inequality. So in this case, it seems to me that if you would like to argue that African-Americans are responsible for, for persistent inequality, you must deny something in this argument. You must perhaps argue that African-Americans are responsible for past and present discrimination, but that seems impossible. So it would have to be an, a, a response or a revision of the analytical argument that I'm proposing. And perhaps that's where Glenn would take issue, but we'll find out in a minute. Now, I, I, I 
personally find this line of argument quite persuasive. This is roughly how I think about the issue. But I would doubt that it's convincing to Glenn or to many who agree with him. And this is because I would guess that Glenn objects to the idea that behavior can be considered the simple, straightforward result of past and present discrimination. I can hear him saying in his head as he listens to me now, Adonair, what kind of bleak, deterministic vision of humankind is this? Of humans is nothing but the playthings of structure and history. So suppose you don't grant me my revision above and you're adamant instead that humans in fact do more than simply respond to circumstance. In other words, what you would like to argue is that behavioral patterns do develop autonomously from structural circumstance. Suppose your view is that what has happened in Black America is the following. Something like a distinctively Black culture has evolved such that African Americans are reasoning about their choices in ways that others would not if they found themselves in the same circumstances. This is usually what people have in mind when they argue that there is work available which others in the same circumstances would perform. There are families to form which others in the same circumstances would in fact form. There is violence that African Americans need not commit, which others who are similarly poor and destitute would not commit. Now, I do have to reiterate that I happen to think that the evidence for this kind of view is quite limited. My own reading of the literature is that the vast majority of the gaps that we're concerned with between Black Americans and white Americans can actually be explained if we think capaciously about the inequalities that African Americans inherit and the kind of discrimination they face in the United States. I'll just give one example, and we can discuss this more in the, in the debate and in the Q&A. Raj Chetty's recent work, for instance, shows that all of the earnings gap between Black women and white women is closed if you condition just on parental income, and that further most of the gap between Black and white men is. So to put it another way, if you compare Black and white children born in the 1980s to parents of comparable income, their economic prospects actually look identical in the case of girls and close to similar in the case of boys. But let us suppose for the sake of argument that I'm wrong that inherited inequality explains most of what we're out to explain and that Glenn and others are right. Let us suppose that there is something like an identifiably Black culture which has evolved in ways that prevent African Americans from making rational, well-considered choices, which then lead to many of the inequalities that we're trying to explain today. Let's suppose that that's the case. Even in this case, I want to argue to you, it's not possible to hold African Americans responsible in the way that Glenn would like to in this essay. Now, why might that be? Why might I think that? Well, the reason is really quite simple, and actually Glenn alluded to it at times in his remarks, which makes me think that maybe he'll just agree with what I'm about to say. Even if one maintains that culture is something that evolves independently of structural circumstance, it is still obviously something, it is obviously something that any given Black American inherits rather than creates. And here I'll just note that I'm borrowing very liberally from the argument that the philosopher Christopher Lewis develops in some of his work. And for more, you might consult that work. Consider, for instance, the stylized contrast between the black child who shuns her homework because she is desperate not to be accused of acting white and the Asian child who is committed to acing her math test because her peers will extol her for it. What is wrong, I would ask you, with the following description of their respective behavior? Both children, the black child and the Asian child, seek the same ends. They seek status, they seek social standing, they seek respect, 
But it just so happens that because they inhabit different cultural universes, the route to those same ends runs through different means. Under this revision, Glenn's argument would run as follows. Because they inherit a different cultural matrix, African-Americans behave differently. They behave in inequality-promoting ways, and they behave differently than the American mainstream. African-Americans are not responsible for their inherent inherited cultural matrix, and therefore they are not responsible for their different behavior, and therefore they are not responsible for persistent black-white inequality. Now, in his essay, Glenn makes the very, very sharp point that if we follow my line of argument, we run into the regrettable realization that we must dispense not just with blame, but also with praise. A world without condemnation, he argues, must also be a world without celebration. And that seems like a bleak world indeed. But let me offer you a reason to believe that he is wrong about this. I don't, in fact, think that this account requires us to dispense with notions of praise and blame. It simply requires us to dispense with notions of group praise or group blame. And this is what I really like. This is the heart of what I would like to argue to you today. Consider what to me is an obvious weakness in the implicit account of praise and blame that often does the rounds in this kind of argument. This account commits us to judging people based on the character of their actions. That is to say, if someone does something bad, in this case, inequality promoting or self-destructive, they are blameworthy. And if someone does something good, if they do the opposite, they are praiseworthy. But a moment's reflection should reveal that this is not really a tenable moral theory of praise or blame. Individuals do many bad things under duress. You can tell a lie to save your family. Alternatively, individuals do many good things for the wrong reason. You might donate to charity to exploit a tax loophole. So what the character of someone's action doesn't quite seem to convey, doesn't seem to the, the, the blameworthiness or praiseworthiness of an action doesn't actually seem to consist in the character of the action itself. It lies elsewhere. So I propose that that simple rule about praiseworthiness and blameworthiness fails, and we need something else. So let me propose a different account of how to think about praise and blame. And here I'm going to borrow, again, very liberally from the philosopher Julia Markovitz at Cornell, who I saw give a talk on this subject earlier this year. Let me propose to you that an action is blameworthy or praiseworthy to the extent that we would deem that a hypothetical person, who I'm calling here the hypothetical moral appraiser, following Markovitz, who is an individual endowed with ordinary or average strength of will, to the extent that that individual can reasonably say, had I been in that person's position, I would not have behaved as poorly or as well as the person in question. Now, this formulation might seem complex, but I actually think that it can bring some clarity to this debate. Under this rule, it's entirely possible to blame those who make extraordinarily bad decisions, even under conditions of structural and cultural disadvantage, if there are things that one can reasonably say the average person would not have done themselves. This might be a person who is atypically dishonest, atypically violent, atypically cruel, it is also possible to praise those who make extraordinarily good decisions under conditions of disadvantage. If they strike you as things that the average person could not have done, this might be the rare child who manages to do his math homework every week, despite his peers telling him that he is a nerd. 
This way of thinking about praise and blame has the desirable consequence of allowing us still to talk about praise and blame. We can still condemn and we can still celebrate. But it also means that we must moderate the judgments we make about people's decisions by attending to the circumstances in which those decisions are made. So let me return, for for instance, to the hypothetical stylized example of the black child and the Asian child. Under any fair application of Markowitz's rule, blame here makes no sense. Both children are making the kind of choices that the average appraiser would make. They're behaving in the way that they do because they're responding in the ordinary ways that the typical individual would respond to the rewards and sanctions that characterize their cultural universe. Now, I here submit to you that all of what Glenn has in mind under the heading of behavioral pathologies in the Black community, under the heading of average behavioral pathologies in the Black community, are the aggregate effects of these kinds of ordinary choices made by individuals in certain kinds of circumstances. Among these choices, now here I want to be very clear, among these choices are surely some blameworthy choices, surely some exceptionally blameworthy choices. And also among them are some exceptionally praiseworthy choices. But on average, what I'd like to suggest is that what we're talking about here are choices that on average the average appraiser would also make. The average choice is the ordinary choice. And in fact, a moment's reflection should suggest that it could hardly be otherwise. For note that under this rule, under Markowitz's rule, the only way to hold an entire group responsible is to defend the thesis that on average, this group would behave differently than would the average moral appraiser who found themselves in the positions occupied by that group. Put another way, to hold a group responsible, one must defend the idea that the whole group is on average somehow possessed of less strength of will or less strength of character. And I don't see any way to defend this except to invoke some kind of obviously unfounded racial essentialism about groups. In summary, my point in this second section has been that even if you believe that cultural evolution has led to pathologies that cannot be explained by circumstance, it proves impossible to argue the position that whole groups are somehow responsible for these pathologies and their results. And this is not the same, I'd just like to be clear, this is not the same as arguing that we cannot hold individuals responsible for their actions. Of course we can. But the average of these many individual judgments at the level of a racial group is necessarily going to lead us to render no judgment on the group. Let me summarize for you then what I've tried to argue to you today in response to Glenn's excellent essay. I've suggested first that there's an ambiguity in the analytical part of Glenn's essay around the precise relationship of behavioral pathology to past and present discrimination to social structure. If Glenn resolves that ambiguity in the way that I would suggest by arguing that these behaviors are explained by past and present discrimination, I don't think he arrives that he can arrive at a case for group responsibility. The normative conclusion is vulnerable. But I've argued that even if Glenn resolves that ambiguity in a way that retains an autonomous role for behavior and culture in explanations of racial inequality, it doesn't follow, as I think he proposes in his essay, that Black Americans are somehow to blame, that there is some personal responsibility here to to be discussed. I think the trope of responsibility is thus really of no use to us in discussions of Black-White inequality. And that's the main thing of which I'd like to convince you and Glenn, hopefully, today. 
Let me just end by noting that even though I disagree with Glenn on some of the normative reasoning in his essay, I would still like to emphatically and wholeheartedly co-sign his conclusion, the conclusion of the essay and then the conclusion also of his remarks today. Because he ends his essay by suggesting that the problems of Black America are not just a communal, but a national disgrace. And in other places, he has recently suggested, although not so in this essay, but in other places recently suggested against the tide, against the tide today, that to fight this racial inequality, we must build a national and not just a racial politics. And as always, I agree with this, and I think there are few who could put it better than he. So thank you for listening. And Glenn, I look forward to hearing what you think. Thanks very much. Um, so we have uh, a couple of questions that have uh, that have come in. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, is turn it over to um, to Glenn just to see if you have just a couple uh, comments uh, responses to to Adoner, and then I can bring in some of the questions that have uh, that have started to roll in so far. Well, let, let me thank um, Adoner, my friend, for his brilliant critical um, response to my humble effort. Uh, and unfortunately, although he and I have been talking about these matters for, you know, a couple of years, uh, I didn't have the benefit of seeing his uh, analytical and normative uh, disposition in advance. And there's so much content there that I feel I can't really do it justice on the fly. Uh, I'd want to think about some of those uh, uh, issues that uh, Adoner has raised uh, and and try to fashion a, a reaction, not necessarily uh, a refutation. Um, but I, I think he's got it right that he and I differ with respect to the determinism question, the expect, with respect to the issue of the extent to which the structure of the African-American family in the year 2020, with uh, two-thirds of kids born to women without husbands, um, with uh, father absence and so on, uh, just take that as one issue, or uh, low academic uh, achievement in uh, the, the public schools of African-American youngsters or high participation in criminal uh, uh, criminal acts is caused by, is the necessary consequence of, is the inescapable entailment of the fact of historical mistreatment of black people. I don't believe that that's true. Uh, Adana is a social scientist and so am I. We both want to look at the evidence uh, and I suppose we could have an argument. I defy uh, anybody to demonstrate uh, how it is that uh, the uh, history of African-American discrimination and exclusion and marginalization in the country explains the contemporary status of the African-American family, particularly when we consider that the, um, the structural changes I'm calling attention to really don't begin to manifest themselves until the second half of the 20th century. Um, so... I mean, I'm, I'm put in mind, I'm not a philosopher, but I, I did read a little bit of uh, Kant's uh, Grun Rissa Foundation for Metaphysics of Morals, and I remember an argument in there about uh, heteronomy and and, and, and and autonomy and whatnot, where he's saying, you know, look, it's true, anything um, that you see a person doing, I mean, an argument can be made that it's somehow the consequence of their history, it's somehow the weight of the all of the environmental circumstances and influences uh, but if we're going to have any kind of capacity for making moral judgment, we have to assume this is the so-called transcendental move that he makes in this argument, that we have to assume that people um, are capable of uh, of uh, making, moral, uh, making moral judgments. So I'm, in effect, making a 
leap of faith in ascribing to African Americans the collective agency necessary to develop amongst ourselves different responses to the historical conditions that we inherit. Uh, after all, the civil rights movement is not, is it, a deterministic consequence of the fact of oppression? It is an expression, is it not, of the determination of African Americans to assert their uh, humanity and to petition for their equal citizenship and for our freedom, so to speak. Um, you, you say we can't uh, uh, account for, uh, I, I'm sorry, what I want to say is I don't think we can account for uh, some of the most important contributions that African Americans have made to the development of American uh, society if we assume that uh, the actions of these people are completely determined by uh, by their history. So I take I take some issue there. Um, but um, I'm sorry, I, I, I think I should uh, uh, stop and let stimulation yeah. from further question or something like that, because there's so much on the table. Yeah, I think I think one of the um, one of the participants uh, has has asked um, what what both of you think about um, Michelle Alexander's the new Jim Crow. I know it's something that you that you both have talked about before and written about um, mass incarceration. What is your take on on the way that that sort of relates to both of to both of your arguments? I think the the questioner wants to know. I'd like to let Adana respond to that. I'll just say briefly, I, I think she vastly overstates the extent to which the disproportionate representation of Blacks in uh, uh, incarceration is due to the prosecution of the drug war and is a consequence of racially discriminatory administration of law and uh, so forth. I, I think there are issues there that she puts her finger on, but I think the likening of the contemporary circumstance to Jim Crow suggests a kind of uh, uh, argument that uh, I don't think the uh, evidence supports. I think I would co-sign much of what Glenn said in response to that question, which is to say that the, the argument of the new Jim Crow, for those who don't know, is effectively that the reason that America has mass incarceration, which is the phenomenon of having many more people in prison than basically any society we know of in world history, maybe with the exception of the Soviet Union, is that America launched a war on drugs at some point in the 60s and 70s as a reaction to the civil rights movement and what was happening in the country in the 60s. It was, in effect, a play by politicians, a law and order politics that was pushed by certain politicians that resulted in extremely racially stratified ways in the kind of system that we have today. I think one weakness of that is the weakness that Glenn already alluded to, which is that Drugs doesn't explain, drugs do not explain mass incarceration. Actually, only about 20% of American prisoners are in prison for drugs. And in fact, a smaller minority, a very, very small minority of those are the kinds of prisoners that Michelle Alexander has in mind, the people who simply use drugs and end up in prison for that reason. A lot of the problem of American mass incarceration is actually the problem of violence. And this is how it relates to our earlier discussion, which is to say that Glenn is absolutely right to suggest that behavior of a certain kind is at issue here. That is to say that crime and violence are large parts of the explanation for both racial inequality and the rise in punishment in the United States. Now, what I would like to add to Glenn's account is to say that we must not conclude from that that we can think of blame and responsibility in the simple way that I think Glenn is proposing we do. 
And further, in the case of American mass incarceration, what I would add is that the rise in violence need not have met with a punitive response in the United States. There were other options on the table. And so much of the issue, and this is much of what I try and argue when I write about mass mass incarceration, so much of the issue with regards to American punishment is the question, why did America choose to fight the rise in violence with punitive policy rather than with any of the other social policy tools that a government has at its, as its disposal. And a sneak preview of my argument, basically, is that penal policy is remarkably inexpensive when looked at in simple accounting terms. Punitive, punitive approaches to management of crime and social disorder are remarkably inexpensive. And so the puzzle of why America responded to the rise in violence with mass incarceration is really the puzzle of why America doesn't spend more on its poor and its disenfranchised. And that's a puzzle which we can talk about as well. But that's how I would revise the, the new Jim Crow. Yeah, can, can I do a follow-up from something that, uh, that, that, that's come through uh, in one of the questions? Um, uh, Donner, are you arguing um, in your argument that, um, are you making a case for structural racism? Uh, and um, Glenn, I just wonder, what do you think about the argument um, for structural racism, is it does it have merit? Um, yeah, that, I put that both to you. Something that appeared uh, in the questions. Let me respond briefly. There's one thing I want to say first, if I may, Robert, which is that um, I don't like the way Adonner puts it when he says, uh, "I want to blame black people for inequality." Maybe that's what it comes to. In which case, I regret that because <laughs> my intention is not to say it's your fault. Rather, it's an exhortation to action, which I think can have a contribute to the diminishment of mm. racial inequality and which I would urge upon African-Americans to undertake. I think we can do a better job as a community in taking advantage of such opportunities as exist, notwithstanding the history. And I'm exhorting my fellows to see such uh, opportunity and pursue such courses of constructive action. Mm. If that comes to blaming them for it, then um, I'm sorry, because that's not that's not the way I would have put it. Structural racism. Well, I, I, I don't know what people are talking about. I mean, or else they're talking about everything. They, they, here's how I understand the discourse. There's a disparity. African-Americans are on the short end of it. Therefore, society is at fault. And we're going to call that structural racism. There's no effort to actually uh, exhibit the explicit causal processes that are at work. It imputes racism to the ether. I mean, it imputes racism to uh, everything. And um, it uh, therefore, I don't think, goes very far at explaining anything. Um, I would ask for a much more granular exhibition of the institutional and uh, behavioral dynamics that the person has in mind when they invoke structural racism. It feels to me like a rhetorical move, an effort to uh, get the upper hand in an argument uh, and an effort to avoid doing this thing that I have just been doing, which is calling attention to the role that African-American behavior might play in some of the in some of the disparities. Of course, if you attribute any African-American behavior that uh, uh, affects the disparity to past racism, then, I mean, it's a, you know, we're, we're done. I mean, everything is going to be due to racism in that event. But as I've said, I, I'm not willing to accept that position. 
I, I would mostly agree with that, actually. I think that Glenn is right to suggest that when people use that term, they run together a few different causal chains that deserve to be separated. What I would say in defense of those who use the term structural racism is that it's typically used to call attention to the fact that it's not simply present day discrimination. Glenn uses the term bias. I think he used the term bias in his remarks to refer to that. It's not simply that that is unjust, but also the fact that African-Americans find themselves in a, on average, subordinate place in the in American society, that they inherit certain inequalities and that that too, people want to say, is unjust. But I agree that in effect, in doing that, they're running together an analytical argument and a normative argument, and those two things should be kept apart. I don't really mind when as people use the term as long as they're explicit, explicit. They mean about what they mean. But usually, but I think usually I think I, I do agree with Glenn that it's, it's typically not clarifying, not clarifying rather than clarifying. Yeah. So one of the questions um, that has uh, a couple of questions that have popped up. Um, want to want to ask Glenn about. Um, uh, your, your discussions of, of responsibility um, for Black Americans, and there's a question I want to do a follow up for for Adana as well. But the but the the questioner says, well, um, is this the way she puts it? Is your emphasis on responsibility meant to imbue a sense of urgency, right, in um, in Black Americans, or do you or do you actually believe that there's a culture, right, that creates um, uh, non-optimal behavior, right? And and the follow would be from this is, if that's the case, how do you how do you inculcate positive cultural behaviors in a group? In other words, what what policy prescriptions do, would you have? Um, yeah, that that's yeah. the question that popped up. Yeah, Glenn. Well, I mean, the policy prescriptions I would have because uh, it's policy. We're talking about policy. So we're talking about the state, we're talking about law, we're talking about legislation, programs, uh, appropriation, investment. Um, And those policies are American policies for American citizens if we're talking about the United States of America, and those are the terms in which I would want to approach them. So I would be asking not only with respect to African Americans, but with respect to Americans, what what kind of policy should we be? If there are too many people in prison, if police are not being adequately trained or, uh, you know, held accountable for their uh, bad behavior, um, if the schools are not working, um, if there's no housing for people who are homeless, if there's food insecurity, et cetera, these are matters that should be addressed through policy. These are the only matters, I think, that can be addressed through policy. Telling uh, husbands and wives that they should stay together and raise their children as best they can. I mean, that's not something that I can do very much uh, about through policy. Indirectly, I can. I can wonder whether or not the income support policies have bad incentives or whether the rules of qualification for beneficiaries encourage this or that kind of behavior. I can send messages. Messaging can be important. I think, you know, when we say... uh, uh, no justice, no peace. We're sending a message, right? I mean, when we tell people to get out of their chairs and to get out into the streets and to demand the uh, justice, aren't we sending a message? We're exhorting people to action. Um, the, the, the character of public discourse needn't be confined to a kind of, uh, you know, flat and, 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 and neutral discussion without saying uh, to people, that this is a better way of living, affirming a better way of living for our people. 
exhorting our people to take responsibility for the raising of their children, this kind of thing. I'm repeating myself. But uh, so I didn't answer the question, how do I make the black family stronger through public policy? Uh, I didn't answer the question, what do I do about the homicide rate on the south side of Chicago or whatever it might be through public policy? We can talk about guns. We can talk about uh, midnight basketball or whatever. We could talk about how the criminal law is shaped, how it's enforced and whatnot. These are things that we can talk about. But uh, that has not largely been my concern. <clears throat> Donner, what would you say um, to this? Well, I think this actually maybe gets to the heart of uh, disagreement between us, which is maybe just actually revealing that we're talking about this, Glenn, you and I, in slightly different registers, which is to say that you see yourself as exhorting people to certain ends as demanding that they be the best they can be or something like this. And I, I see this more in the light of the kind of policy discussion that you're saying is not your objective, which is to say that I think my own view is that, you know, there's a moment, there's a moment in your essay and in your remarks, Len, where you say something like, um, uh, I dare anyone to tell me that expanding social spending will fix the black family. Um, and I take up your dare, which is to say that, I, I, I dare you, Glenn, to show me that exhort, exhorting, uh, exhorting the black family to stay together has ever had any effect. I, I, I think that, in fact, what we need here to respond more directly to the questioner is we need a renewed commitment to social policy in this country. I mean, this country lags behind other developed countries in the amount that it commits to its poor, disproportionately African-American. And what we need is a redoubling of those efforts. Well, let me respond to that just briefly, uh, Bob, because I'm thinking about Black Lives Matter, okay? And I'm, and I'm thinking about what that, what that means. Now, there are policies that one can invoke uh, in response to the agitation from Black Lives Matter, but largely it is an exhortation. It is a call to the country. When I was up in uh, Jackson, New Hampshire in the White Mountains, which is like 99.9% white, <laughs> I saw kids marching on the roadside with Black Lives Matter signs. They were not trying to do anything <laughs> other than affirm the idea that Black Lives Matter. Now, 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 if I look at what's causing Black life to come to an end, among the causes are violent policemen and among the causes are violent other young kids with guns who happen to be Black, so-called Black-on-Black crime. The only point I'm making is the, the decision to not condemn those guys forcefully with the same kind of uh, energy and the same organizational imperative to not call them out. They're murderers. They're murdering our people. They're contemptible to not talk in that way because of ideology. I mean, if we have to situate this discourse within the larger arguments about American society and the political arguments left and right and so forth. But, but that's a decision that I would have had made differently. I would have had Black Lives Matter incorporate, not the organization, but the the impetus, incorporate into this call to the country a sense of a judgment about the uh, violent behavior of some Black people vis-a-vis -vis other Black people. I don't see that that's, you know, inconsistent with, uh, you know, calling for uh, accountability for police officers and so forth. But I just give that as an example of the kind of thing that I'm talking about. But Bob, can I respond to that? Because that's, I Absolutely. think yeah. it's, it's a perfect example for me, Glenn, because 
I thought the reason initially when you just brought this example up, I thought you were bringing it up to reveal some of the limits of Black Lives Matter, that precisely its limits is that it's limited to this exhortative sort of mode, demanding that white America do better, demanding that certain, uh, demanding in the language of justice, as you were saying, no justice, no peace, whatever else. And that to me reveals some of its limits and that it doesn't have, um, or at least in the, the, the avatar that you're discussing, it doesn't have a policy agenda. I'm not saying that there aren't people who have policy agendas, but at least in your example. Um, and so to use that as an example of the kind of thing you're, you're, you're doing suggests to me that you may have the same limits in, in your, you may, you may meet with the same limits in your exhortative attempts, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I'll just call attention to the fact that we Negroes, we used to be Negroes, uh, and then we, and, and we became black people, and then we became uh, Afro-Americans, and then we became African-Americans. And all of this redefinition was an, an internal, you know, agency uh, uh, expressing kind of effort to shape the consciousnesses of our people about who we are and what the meaning of being black in 21st century America might be. Uh, so there are many possibilities there. I mean, raise your children is not, it's not exactly <clears throat> calling somebody a bad name to, to say, look, you know, our community would be much more, um, much more, have much greater integrity and be much more effective at uh, taking advantage of such, such opportunity as exists. <clears throat> yeah, if we raise the level of our game. Excuse me, I'm sorry. So, but perhaps then this is a is a this is a disagreement or a discussion about who the audience is. Perhaps, Glenn, for you, the audience is your own community, members of your own community. Whereas I'm suggesting that when the audience is policymakers, government, or power holders, that a different register is demanded than the register that you're adopting. And so, in, in that sense, maybe we agree, but we're just speaking to different people. Yeah, there's a, a a question that's come in about um, policy. I want to ask a donor later on about uh, non-state institutions um but uh but about um actual public policy so it's, it's a question for you both and the and the question says this what do you make of the classic social democratic argument that we should expand existing and enact new social programs that universally benefit the poor and working class and that such um, universal programs will disproportionately benefit african-americans because they're disproportionately represented among the poor and working class for historical reasons, slavery, Jim Crow segregation, et cetera. What, what do you both make of that uh, social democratic argument? I would identify myself with that argument, although I'm not sure I would call myself a social democrat. I am an economist, after all, <laughs> trained in the neoliberal tradition. So there's some stuff social democrats are going to want to do, like the Green New Deal, uh, that I might I might have some pause about and say wait a minute the cost the benefits et cetera et cetera but but the idea that the way to address the uh, uh, pro- problems of uh, deprivation and and disadvantage uh, in the African American community ought mainly to be understood through efforts to create the kind of social compact that uh, has a robust safety net and that extends opportunity opportunity to all of our citizens. Uh, I believe in that. I believe that that's the way to go, not only to heal racial disparities, but to create a decent society. And I'd go further. I'd say African-Americans ought to be willing to lend our moral credibility, such leverage as we might have, 
derived from the fact of our historical mistreatment to the larger project of creating a decent society for everybody, rather than talking in terms of making us whole, making a side deal with America so that black people get paid. Uh, I would prefer to put our chips on the table along with those of other uh, disadvantaged and, and aspiring uh, peoples for the project of creating a better society. We could talk about the details later. Donner? Well, I think Glenn says it better than I could say it. The only thing that I would add to what Glenn said is a point that he makes a lot, which I think is really important, which is if you see yourself as an advocate for racial justice, you do have to recognize, you, you do have to reckon with the fact that you live in a country in which you're a minority. And this was something that strategists of the civil rights movement, I think, understood very well. The MLK understood, the people like Baird Rustin understood that to make a racial politics work in a country with a white majority population, you need to be able, you need to build a politics that can appeal to the disadvantaged and the disenfranchised at large and not simply in uh, your own racial group. And that's the kind of thing that I think this social democratic politics also has to recommend, which is not just that it is the right way to think about justice, but also that it's the right way to think about coalition building in a country like this one. Yeah, Donner, a question uh, popped up. Um, are there are there behaviors that you think, um, you know, Glenn's, Glenn's argument has focused on, well, part of his argument has focused on positive cultural behaviors. And do you think, what, what would you identify <laughs> as good cultural behaviors for, uh, for groups? I mean, are there, are there ones that you'd advocate uh, for? I mean, in other words, are there parts of Glenn's argument that you take um, to have merit where he talks about the, the kinds of behaviors that individuals uh, or groups of individuals, you call them aggregate individual groups of individuals, have? Yeah, so I think this is a useful time to return to that question of the analytical and normative distinction that I was trying to make. Because analytically, I don't at all deny that you can speak in terms of good behavior and bad behavior in the sense that it is, in the, in the trivial sense, actually, that it's a bad thing that the homicide rate is higher in certain communities than in other communities, that you could describe that in terms of behavior, absolutely, and one would be a good thing and one would be a bad thing. What I, re- what I resist, though, is the inference from the fact of good and bad behavior at the group level to the fact of blame and praise at the group level. Because I don't think, for the reasons that I was trying to argue, that you can reason coherently about blame and praise at the group level, because it requires an answer to the Markovitz test, which I was trying to outline, which just doesn't work. It requires you to say that if I were to put myself in the shoes of every single person in this community, I would behave differently. And that just that just can't work. It just can't work because there's no, there are, particularly at the level of racial groups, there's no way you could make that argument without actually imputing something essential to that group, which is something that we all deny. I think you could say that if I found myself in the shoes of this particular person, I would behave differently. But once you find yourself saying that about every single person in a group or in a community, I think your argument is um, is running aground. Um, a, a, a question emerged, um, maybe you know, following on from the the social democratic uh, you know argument question before. Um, what part does? I mean, the, the question says, do you believe capitalism plays a part in systemic racism? I think maybe Glenn would, and, and it sounds like you too would reject the notion of, of systemic racism, but let's just 
say that that the kinds of of outcomes that you both have um, have identified persistent racial inequality to to what extent the question wants to know can that be chalked up simply to capitalism uh, I mean. A person might say, let's look at the history of the labor movement in the United States. So this is organizing workers in order to stand against bosses to demand working conditions and compensation, basically to get a bigger cut of the surplus that the workers and bosses create through, uh, you know, factories and, and production and so on. And they might say, look, the bosses have an interest in the workers not getting on the same page. They're weaker when the workers are divided. And so racism, racial enmity, antipathy between workers based on their racial identity would be useful to the bosses because it would keep them from more effectively organizing themselves, the workers, to uh, confront the capitalists and to get a bigger cut. And I think there's merit in that historical observation. I think you can see, you know, in the history of American labor movement uh, that uh, to some degree capitalists had an interest in uh, seeing the workers divided. But but I, I think if I try to take that sensibility into a, a much broader characterization of, you know, racial inequality, I, 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 it starts to sound like sloganeering to me and a little bit uh, ideological. And I don't know how it accounts for some of the fine uh, granular details. How does capitalism explain uh, uh, the uh, structure of uh, the American family, for example. How does capitalism tell me about uh, how many guns people are going to hold? I, you know, I, I can see people making arguments, but I think those arguments are tortured. Uh, moreover, let me just observe. I think we're seeing it in this moment of uh, racial reckoning as the capitalists in the professional sports leagues and in the, uh, uh, you know, athletic shoe businesses and all the rest. Uh, stumble over each other to advertise their woke, uh, you know, uh, sensibilities and to embrace the, uh, the you know, current movements and uprising and so forth, because, you know, there's, it cuts both ways is what I'm saying. I'm saying going after a buck is going after a buck, <laughs> you know, and it could go after a buck by promoting racism. If you can get away with it that way, you can go after a buck by promoting anti-racism. If you can get away with it that way. Um, I don't think there's something intrinsic in capitalism, although I understand that there's a whole school of thought out there about racial capitalism and all of that. Uh, I don't subscribe to it. Donner, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it's a weighty question, which Glenn answers well. I would say I agree with Glenn that there are mechanisms that <clears throat> promote racial inequality within capitalism, and specifically the one that he was talking about, the incentive to divide and otherwise potentially united working class. But there are obviously also incentives. There are also obviously mechanisms within capitalism that do the opposite. I'm thinking of the Gary Becker kind of argument about how capitalism tends to undermine discrimination because we're businesses of an interest in making a profit, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there are countervailing mechanisms in both direction. What I would emphasize, which I wonder with whether Glenn would agree with, is that the sense in which sometimes people mean that capitalism plays a role in reproducing racial inequality is that capitalism without systematic redistribution from rich to poor can be a capitalism which which lends sort of uh, which leads to uh, reproduction of inequalities generation after generation. 
Now, that isn't simply a feature of capitalism. That has something to do with the way in which capitalism interfaces with past histories of inequality. But it can mean that the simple operation of capitalism reproduces inequality in a way that if you had a more aggressive redistributive state, you might undo racial inequality more rapidly than otherwise. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be right, right? Yeah. I mean, if we if we had equal uh, distribution of wealth just by fiat, we wouldn't have racial equality by definition. And I think that's the sense in which sometimes people mean capitalism promotes racial and uh, capitalism promotes systemic racism. And that's the sense in which I would co-sign the argument. Yeah. So one of the one of the questions. So um, Ohio University sits in um, squarely in Appalachia and uh, it's the poorest county in the state of, uh, of, of Ohio. And it's just in a very, very poor region. So one of the one of the questions is a student um, said that you know, both of you have talked about generational poverty. And, and the student wonders, what do you take to be um, the differences between um, generationally impoverished white Americans mm. and generationally impoverished African-Americans, right? So basically people who live in, in this part of the world, in Appalachia, uh, and, and the people uh, that, you're, that you've been talking about tonight. I want to hear a donor on that, but I can't stop thinking about J.D. Vance. Mm-hmm. When I read that book, I said, oh, I know that on <laughs> my own growing up on the South side of Chicago and working class and poor communities. A lot of the stuff that he identified that was characteristic of his upbringing and his milieu was very familiar to me. So. Absolutely. And I, I you know, another book that does the same, which I know Glenn, you've actually referenced in connection with the exact same point is Matthew Desmond's book, which talks both about black Milwaukee and white Milwaukee. Indeed. But, I, but I would have to say, Glenn, maybe this is a, point where where I'll ask you to respond more directly to my account of structure and culture is that I I feel like these kinds of examples give ballast to my argument that in fact certain kinds of behavioral pathologies which were which were the kinds of behavioral pathologies that we're talking about are actually consequences they're actually I don't I'm going to put it in the most bald economistic way that I can there there are sort of rational adaptations to circumstance I wonder why you reject that if um, if you if you're the economist and I'm the sociologist. Why why is that something that that you wouldn't agree with? No, I, I understand you to be saying take any people. They can be Chinese. They can be Appalachian whites. They can be black people or whatever. Precisely. Run them through the same historical mill. You're going to get the same behavior. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm not disputing that. There's no reason for me to think that, in any sensualist way, African Americans are different from Appalachian white Americans or something like that in the way that they would respond to exigency. What I'm rejecting is that it it closes off the future. I mean, it, 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 this is your normative argument. This is where you said, don't blame people, because if you had put anybody in that circumstance, you'd get pretty much the same pattern of behavior. What I'm saying is that circumstance doesn't determine it's not it's not uh it doesn't preclude the possibility of alternative responses to the very same circumstance we can will a different world i I really (laughs) believe that but it's an assertion of faith we can can will a different uh, adapt adaptive response we can see maladaptation as it is evolving in our uh in our midst and we can respond to it in effective ways 
And and I'd like to agree with that at the level of the individual, but I think it's too much to ask at the level of a group because it presumes in effect, it presumes in effect exactly the denial of the thought exercise that you just, the thought experiment that you just walked through. Because it is to say in effect that if you were to run people through the same historical mill, they would behave the same way. But in fact, no, in fact, we might be able to, do differently if we were to run through the same historical mill. And it, it, it just doesn't, it seems to me to be a contradiction in that sense, which is to say, I, I perhaps didn't put it as clearly as I wanted. It's to say that for any given individual, I absolutely agree that certain barriers need not be barriers that they can't overcome. But once you find yourself making that argument at the level of groups, I submit to you that the argument becomes a little bit more shaky. Yeah, Donna, there's a question I had so about Glenn's argument. So Glenn had something in his argument, and he he he's written about it elsewhere when he's talking about structural racism. He said it, not only is it a bluff, he said it's not an engagement with history. And Glenn, as I heard you lay out your argument, you said there was a particular moment in American history that this that this disparity grew. Um, and so uh what do you what do you understand that history to be? I'm talking um, in in that instance. I'm talking about the family issue, the out of wedlock births, and stuff like that. And a lot's been written about this. Herbert Gutman's book, "The Black Family and Slavery and Freedom," where he finds a lot of evidence that there were pretty robust uh, traditional two parent family kind of ethos amongst African Americans, going all the way back, even looking at the freedmen's behavior in the early years after the emancipation. Um, and it's not until you get, you know, Moynihan is writing in the 60s and he's looking at 20, 25 percent of black kids born out of wedlock. And we're looking at 70 percent or so now. And and so that dynamic to which I would, uh, you know, if I were looking for culprits to blame, I, I mean, there's plenty of blame to go around. But it's certainly not a direct straight line consequence of the history of uh, African-American exclusion. Right. At the nature of the welfare state, for example, that's not a consequence of African-American, uh, you know, discrimination and slavery. That's a consequence of the decisions that contemporary American politicians and administrators are making about how to deal with uh, the general questions of poverty. I would look at the uh, feminism. I mean, I look at the cultural uh, changes within the larger American social matrix that then have consequences, perhaps deleterious consequences for certain aspects of African-American uh, life. I mean, I didn't get to fully develop my Manhattan Institute argument, but uh, I even used the phrase cultural complicity in trying to say that American mm. culture in its larger uh, organic sense is partly complicit in the dynamics that have redounded in certain features of African-American culture that we can that we can call attention to. Yeah, Donner, so so that, that point Glenn's making, Glenn's case is a, is a case that has lots of contingent moments. So the, the nature of the great society, the nature of the welfare state. But how does your argument account for these contingent moments that um, Glenn, the, the story Glenn's telling could have gone a number of different ways, but it sounds the way that your argument is that it could only go one way, right? You know, and, and what do you make of that, about Glenn's argument about contingency? Right, right. Um... No, that's absolutely right. And that's a nice distinction. I, I do think it could have only gone one way if that's meant in a certain sense. If that is to say we were to replay American history, I think we would see more or less what we saw. I mean, the story that I would tell about the 20th century would emphasize structural changes in the American economy. I think the one sentence summary of 
the difficulty or the persistence of racial inequality over the course of the 20th century is that America never replaced the jobs lost to agriculture for African-Americans. African-Americans came from the South after the collapse of the plantation economy. They came to cities in the, in the North, in the Midwest, and cities in the South, actually, in the West, that where jobs and public goods were already hoarded by established white ethnics. I mean, America is the only country in the advanced capitalist world, which, or not, maybe not the only country, but the main, the main, the major country in the advanced capitalist world, which industrialized not with its own peasantry, but with the peasantry of a foreign land. And that created a huge series of problems for African-Americans once they came late, in effect, to American industrialization. And so as a consequence, I think the story that I would tell is a story of the the persistent difficulty of replacing those jobs lost to agriculture over the course of the 20th century. And I see that more or less as the story. Once you throw the trigger of deindustrialization in the 60s and 70s, that's to me the story of the disintegration of African-American communities and the black family. It's, you know, my, my um, reference here would be William Julius Wilson, who is a sociologist who Glenn knows much better than I do. But that's sort of the story that I would tell about facts that Glenn which to me is a deterministic story in the sense that it's not a story that would have gone any other way. That sounds plausible to you, Glenn. Yeah, actually, um, I could identify with that. I mean, in my course I teach on race and inequality at Brown to undergraduates, I start off with a couple of books. One of them is Thomas Segrew's book, The Origins of the Urban Crisis. Uh, it's about Detroit, and it's telling the story that Adana just told in the specific case of Detroit. And the other one is uh, Ira Katznelson's When Affirmative Action Was White, which is about why the New Deal came out the way that it came out in the 1930s based on the political exigency of having the Democratic Party dominated by long-serving Southern legislators who wanted to shape the New Deal so it it did not disturb the uh, racial hierarchy in the the pre-Civil Rights South. Uh, So, yeah, you know, there's a lot of common ground here. (laughs) So, <laughs> but you guys gonna let me eat dinner? Or what? Yes. Can I, can I end with two questions for you, right? From from viewers who 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 have done this. So one is a one is a um, the viewer is clearly a very cynical person, and the other is a, a sort of hopeful. So I'll give you the cynical one first, and the hopeful one on the way out. So the the sort of cynical question is: um, Isn't structural racism an ideological gang language used by Democratic Party neoliberals in order to avoid a class based critique that would not appeal? To Wall Street and Silicon Valley funders. Does that does that strike you all as, as plausible? Somebody else's question, not mine. <laughs> does that does that does that sound does that sound um uh, no, not 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 to me anyway. No, my <laughs> okay. I mean, I think it's, it's it's an interesting provocation, but I think it depends on what you mean by structural racism and what is understood by structural racism. I do think that. There is something to the question just in the sense that, as Glenn was saying earlier, there's something remarkable about the cultural moment that we're living through when corporations can, you know, uh, are, are competing with each other to show their commitment to um, anti-racism and such. We, we should think about what that means for anti-racism in an ideological sense. I, in that sense, I agree with the spirit of the question, but I don't think, I don't, I don't see a lot of people use the term structural racism in that context. Okay. I think you could argue just the opposite. I think you could argue that the structural racism uh, discourse diverts attention away from a real serious class critique 
which would be a critique about workers uh, versus the people who own, uh, you know, who own capital. Uh, and that would be a transracial critique. So a lot of uh, people are invested, a lot of Black people are invested in seeing through a racial lens in, in a way that uh, makes structural racism a very convenient trope for them. Uh, I, I can imagine someone like Adolph Reed, the political scientist uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, who would uh, make this kind of an argument. Not the way that I made it, because he's a He's a Marxist, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So last question for you both. So, so a number of people uh, in the, in the questions um, have been provoked what you said, and just wanted to know from each of you, if, if you were, you know, policymaker for a day and you could choose three things, two or three things that you would like to see concrete policies, you'd actually like to see Glenn says at some point, well, I'll leave the details for the day, but if you could just have three things, um, what would you, what would each of you choose um, to, to sort of change about American social policy. I would end the war on drugs. I would open up uh, the provision of uh, public education to more competition. Um, I would instantiate some kind of baby bond mm. uh, uh, benefit where, uh, you know, we redistributed the wealth a little bit. I don't like going after millionaires and billionaires just for the sake of it. But the idea that everybody might start out with $10,000 or something like that, maybe it's $50,000, I guess we have to run the numbers, uh, is not the worst idea in the world. It would be not a racial policy, but I think it would have a big racial hit. Okay. Adoner? I, I would co-sign the idea of baby bonds, absolutely. I think there's no question that that would be a dramatic step forward. I, uh, Glenn, Glenn's friend, William Darity, writes a lot about that. Um, yeah. I would... I would suggest also, I think, that we think about expanding the suite of social policies that are so underdeveloped in the United States. So that could include anything from universal health care to uh, expanded housing subsidies. You could massively expand Section 8 vouchers. Um, I would suggest that we massively um, e expand the extent to which we spend on income support, on employment insurance. There are a whole host of things like that that I would suggest. But, you know, I think the, the broader spirit here is that the United States is a country which, by cross-national standards, just takes so much less from its rich and gives so much less to its poor than other Quebec capitalist countries. And I think that is reflected in all of the problems that we're discussing today. So my suggestion would be to look to Sweden, to look to Norway, to look to Finland. That's the, that, that's the model that I would suggest. Well, I appreciate you both uh, coming on tonight. Glenn, didn't mean to keep you too long uh, from your uh, from your dinner. Uh, this has been great. Um, for those of you listening, uh, if you like what you've heard uh, on the 27th of October, uh, Rebecca Henderson from the Harvard Business School uh, will be on for a talk on reimagining capitalism in a world on fire. In the meantime, I want to thank uh, Glenn Lowry and Adana Yusmani for coming on tonight uh, to uh, discuss why racial inequality persists. Thank you and good night.